محمد رسول الله والذين معه أشداء على الكفار رحماء بينهم تراهم ركعا سجدا يبتغون فضلا من الله ورضوانا سيماهم في وجوههم من أثر السجود ذلك مثلهم في التوراة ومثلهم في الإنجيل كزرع أخرج شتأه فآزره فاستغلظ فاستوى على سوقه يعجب الزراع ليغيظ بهم الكفار وعد الله الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات منهم مغفرة وأجرا عظيما Muhammad is the messenger of Allah and those with him are forceful against the disbelievers merciful amongst themselves you see them bowing and prostrating seeking bounty from Allah and his pleasure Their sign is in their faces from the effect of prostration. That is their description in the Torah. And their description in the Gospel is as a plant which produces its offshoots and strengthens them so that they grow firm and stand upon their stalks, delighting the planters, so that he may enrage by them the disbelievers. Allah has promised those who believe and do righteous deeds among them forgiveness and a great reward. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season six of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this season, we are discussing 100 years of Middle Eastern history after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. This is episode 6 13 Palestine and Iraq, part two. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. The insurgency in Iraq is on the verge of becoming a civil war as Shiites retaliate for Sunni attacks. Support for the war begins to crumble when the U.S. admits there are no WMDs in Iraq. In Palestine, Yasser Arafat dies and Mahmoud Abbas becomes president of the Palestinian Authority. Hamas gets involved in the political process and does surprisingly well in local elections. And with that, let's discuss the conflict between Hamas and the IDF. If you'd like to support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content, then become a member of Islamic History Exclusive. We have two membership levels, one free and one paid. At the free level, you get access to Season 0, Season 1, and all bonus episodes. The paid membership level is only $48 a year and gets you everything in the free level plus additional content such as the story of Ibn Zubair, the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, and inshallah, much more to come. For more information, visit islamichistoryx.com.
Hamas versus the IDF. The year 2006 began with two major events that rocked the Middle East. The first came in early January when Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon suffered a massive stroke. This left him in a coma from which he would never awaken. Deputy Prime Minister Ehud Olmert became the new Israeli Prime Minister. The second event came later that month during the Palestinian national elections. To everyone's shock and surprise, Hamas again did exceptionally well. Hamas retained political control of Gaza, which everyone expected. But no one expected Hamas to win big in the West Bank, particularly in traditional Fatah strongholds like Ramallah, Bethlehem, and Hebron. Hamas won 56% of the vote, giving them the right to form a government and take over administration of the Palestinian territories. However, Fatah won 34% of the seats, so they were still a significant opposition party. The Western world was appalled by these results. Hamas did not believe in the peace process and did not recognize Israel's legitimacy. And now, the United States and other Western nations were in a quandary. They had promoted democracy as the solution to the Muslim world's problems. But now, they were angry with the Palestinians for exercising those democratic principles. The United States cut off all contact with the Palestinian government. Both the U.S. and the E.U. cut off all economic aid to Palestine. Meanwhile, Hamas went forward with creating a new government. Its leader, Ismail Haniyeh, became the new Prime Minister of Palestine, while Mahmoud Abbas, representing Fatah, remained its president. Since Israel would not allow Hamas's elected officials to travel to Ramallah, they had to take their oath of office via video link. But before Hamas could take over, the outgoing Fatah-controlled legislature transferred many of the powers of prime minister to the president. For the next several months, Hamas and Fatah jockeyed for power. But with Hamas stuck in Gaza, there was little they could do since the center of Palestinian authority was in the West Bank. Hamas also continued to conduct militant activities. In late 2006, Hamas militants used a tunnel dug under the Gaza wall to attack an Israeli military outpost at Karim Shalom near the Sinai border. The militants killed two Israeli soldiers and kidnapped a third named Corporal Gilad Shalit. Israel responded by launching Operation Summer Rains, which was intended to stop rocket fire from Gaza and rescue Corporal Shalit. The operation began with Israeli warplanes attacking Gaza infrastructure and Hamas offices and camps. This was followed by a land invasion with Israeli troops occupying strategic locations in southern Gaza while Israeli tanks entered northern Gaza. The Israeli army shelled Gaza from the land while the navy shelled Gaza from the sea. Israeli forces rolled over Hamas's defenses and before long, most of Gaza had either been destroyed or secured by Israel. With that done, Israel began arresting members of Hamas while continuing to hit Gaza with airstrikes. 
And then something strange happened. On July 12th, Hezbollah forces crossed the Lebanese border into northern Israel. It is not clear if Hezbollah did this to relieve the pressure on Hamas or if it was simply taking advantage of the situation in Gaza. Whatever the motivation, Hezbollah's raid caught Israel off guard. Hezbollah killed three Israeli soldiers in the north and captured two others who were taken back into Lebanon. Furious, Israel responded with airstrikes and artillery shelling into southern Lebanon. One of these strikes hit a civilian shelter, killing 28 people, including 16 children. Israeli ground forces then moved into southern Lebanon, but they found the Hezbollah militants were very different from Hamas. Hezbollah is a Shiite militant group and has been funded and trained by Iran for years. It is basically an Iranian proxy. The Hezbollah fighters were better equipped and trained than anything the IDF had faced in Gaza. Hezbollah was also fighting in familiar territory from well-fortified positions. With no air force, no artillery, and no navy, Hezbollah destroyed several Israeli tanks and even shot down an Israeli helicopter. By August, the IDF began to withdraw from Lebanon. Israel had not yet retrieved the two captive soldiers, but their losses were mounting. Israel had invaded with a force of 30,000 troops and lost about 120. Meanwhile, Hezbollah only had about 1,000 fighters and lost about 250. Of course, Lebanese civilians suffered the most. About 1,100 civilians were killed in the conflict. Afterwards, both sides claimed victory. Israel claims to have sufficiently punished Hezbollah for the raid. Hezbollah claims to have forced Israel to withdraw and that they still held the two captives. Ironically, Israel's invasion might have strengthened Hezbollah's position. The Lebanese government and the Lebanese people were grateful to Hezbollah for defending the nation. Two years later, Hezbollah and Israel conducted a prisoner swap and the remains of the two captured soldiers were returned to Israel. Israel believed they were killed during the initial Hezbollah raid, while the Lebanese government claims they were killed during Israeli airstrikes. A few months later, Israel and Hamas agreed to a ceasefire. Corporal Shalit remained in Hamas custody for another five years. Hamas versus Fatah Fatah and Hamas continued to bicker over control of the Palestinian territories. Fatah was angry with Hamas, blaming them for the violence in Gaza. Hamas was angry with Fatah for not handing over power. Tensions continued to escalate until it turned violent with each side's security forces attacking the other. Fearing the situation was getting out of control, Saudi Arabia intervened. In February 2007, the kingdom hosted a meeting between Hamas and Fatah in the holy city of Mecca. This allowed representatives from both groups to work out their differences and come to an agreement. This resulted in the Mecca Agreement, where Hamas and Fatah agreed to form a unity government. But a few months later, fighting broke out again. And this time, it was worse than ever. 
Over the next two months, fighting between Hamas and Fatah led to over 100 Palestinian deaths. The fighting ceased for a few months but then started back up again in June 2007, primarily in Gaza. The United States, which refused to have anything to do with Hamas, announced it would provide training and weapons for Mahmoud Abbas's presidential guards. Hamas said this would give Fatah an unfair advantage which it would use to take over Gaza. A civil war was underway. This was perhaps the worst thing that could happen to the Palestinian cause. Within five days of fighting, Hamas had driven all Fatah forces out of Gaza, while Fatah had driven all Hamas representatives from the West Bank. And now, the already fragile, weak, and dependent Palestinian government was split in two. Fatah, recognized by Israel and the international community, controlled the West Bank. Hamas, isolated and an international pariah, controlled Gaza. Meanwhile, Hamas militants continued to launch rockets over the wall into Israeli territory. In September 2007, Israel declared Gaza hostile territory and partnered with Egypt to impose an economic blockade. Israel then went on to cut off electricity and fuel to Gaza while preventing any other supplies from entering. President Bush's Legacy As 2007 came to a close, President George W. Bush decided to give the Palestinian peace process another shot. He was about to enter the final year of his presidency and wanted to secure his legacy with something besides the disastrous war in Iraq. Even with a military surge, it did not look like Iraq would be settled before elections the following November. In fact, Iraq was looking worse than ever. Abu Musab al-Zarqawi had been killed by an airstrike, but al-Qaeda in Iraq was still very much active. In fact, it had taken on a new name, abandoning its affiliation with Osama bin Laden's group in Afghanistan. They now called themselves the Islamic State of Iraq. There was one significant positive change in Iraq. Several Sunni tribes in Anbar province, disgusted with the carnage caused by AQI or ISI or whatever they call themselves, had decided to work with the new Iraqi government. They formed councils and militias to combat the insurgents and protect their towns and villages. But Sunnis and Shiites were still killing each other at record levels. Saddam Hussein was executed in December 2006, but it had no impact on the insurgency. This continued violence prompted the United States to implement a surge in early 2007, injecting 30,000 additional troops into Iraq. The effectiveness of this surge is disputed. 29,000 civilians were killed in 2006. 26,000 civilians were killed in 2007. Civilian deaths did not start to decrease until U.S. troops began to leave Iraq in 2008. The additional forces also increased American casualties. 2007 was the deadliest year of the war for U.S. forces, with over 900 American deaths in Iraq. Great Britain began drawing down, signaling an end to its role in the war. The British handed security of Basra to Iraqi forces later in the year. 
American public opinion was now definitively against the war, with a majority acknowledging it was a big mistake. And President Bush's approval rating was the lowest it had been in years, just barely above 30%. With all of this bad news, President Bush needed a win. He wanted to be the president who finally resolved the Israel-Palestine conflict. In November 2007, President Bush hosted the Annapolis Conference in Annapolis, Maryland. Mahmoud Abbas, representing Fatah, leaders from several Arab states, and Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert were all present. Hamas was not present, was not invited, and probably would not have attended even if it was. President Bush wanted to secure an agreement on a two-state solution. He moderated the talks, encouraging the leaders to work out their differences and come to some sort of workable arrangement. But like so many others before, nothing came of this conference either. As usual, the talks broke down over the return of Palestinian refugees, Israeli settlements in the West Bank, and the status of Jerusalem. Gaza Under Siege While Mahmoud Abbas and Ehud Olmert were negotiating in Maryland, Israel was still waging its war on Hamas in Gaza. Israel launched several airstrikes against Gaza, killing nearly 200 Palestinians within the first three months of 2008. Hamas also continued to launch rockets from Gaza, which resulted in the deaths of eight Israelis over the entire year. That summer, Prime Minister Olmert surprised everyone by announcing he was stepping down the following year. It turned out he was under investigation for bribery and years of corruption having used his political connections for personal benefit. Knowing his political career was coming to an end, Ehud Olmert tried to strike a once-in-a-lifetime deal with the Palestinians. In August 2008, Olmert offered Mahmoud Abbas a peace deal that he believed would end the conflict once and for all. If Abbas agreed to the deal, Israel would withdraw almost completely from the West Bank. Israel would retain control over the major settlements, which amounted to about 6.3% of the West Bank. Israel would also compensate the Palestinians with an equivalent amount of land in Israel. Almert also promised a link to Gaza and, most important of all, international status for Jerusalem. Surprisingly, Abbas wavered and did not seem ready to accept Almert's deal. The next month, Prime Minister Almert again pressed Abbas to accept his offer. He warned the Palestinian president that it would be 50 years before he received another such offer from Israel. But Abbas wanted more details. Some have suggested he was concerned about how effective this agreement would be with an outgoing, lame-duck prime minister embroiled in a scandal. There was no way to be certain that whoever succeeded Almert the following year would honor the agreement. In later interviews, Abbas said he did not accept the deal because Almert did not give him a map with clear outlines and borders. The two men agreed to meet later for further discussions, but that never happened as they were both distracted by events in Gaza and the United States. The Great Recession 
By the fall of 2008, the United States was in full panic mode. Its economy, which had been shrinking for a while, suddenly went into freefall. Within the first two weeks of September, the government had taken over mortgage lenders Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, bailed out insurance giant AIG, and allowed the investment firm Lehman Brothers to go bankrupt. Gas prices skyrocketed, increasing prices on everything else. The stock market plummeted, and corporations lined up in Washington begging for bailouts. Americans watched, stunned as the economy crumbled before their eyes. They looked back at the previous five years of warfare and wondered what the hell had it all been for. Tens of thousands of dead Iraqis, over 4,000 dead Americans, and over a trillion dollars down the drain. And on top of all that, no WMDs. President Bush's policies had not only destroyed Iraq, they came close to destroying the United States as well. The American public was ready to go in a new direction. That November, they elected Senator Barack Obama of Illinois to be the next president. Obama, unlike his two main opponents, Senators Hillary Clinton and John McCain, was not in Congress in 2002 and had not voted for the Adolf War. Now that everyone realized what a disaster the war was, Obama made sure everyone knew that he had been against it from the very beginning. Barack Obama promised a lot of things during his campaign. He promised to revamp the health care system. He promised to reverse the financial crisis. But most of all, he promised to get out of Iraq. The siege continues. Surprisingly, most Israelis were disappointed and worried about Obama's election. Perhaps it had something to do with his Islamic-sounding name. Obama promised to maintain America's special relationship with Israel. Obama visited the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. Obama confirmed Israel's security would remain America's foremost foreign policy objective. Even with these declarations of support, most Israelis disapproved of Barack Obama as president. Israel decided to deal a knockout blow to Gaza. They wanted to take out Hamas once and for all before the new administration came to power in Washington. Israel launched Operation Cast Lead. Officially, Israel claimed it was in retaliation for Hamas rocket fire. However, many analysts dispute this claim. American philosopher Noam Chomsky wrote in a 2012 article, Not a single Hamas rocket was fired until Israel broke the truce under cover of the U.S. election on November 4th, invading Gaza for no good reason and killing half a dozen Hamas members. Israel, unsure how much leeway they'd have with Barack Obama, wanted to inflict as much damage as possible on Hamas while Bush was still president. The first phase of the operation opened with naval bombardments and airstrikes on Gaza. These attacks were especially vicious, killing 230 Palestinians on the first day alone. The second phase of the operation began in January 2009 when Israeli ground forces entered Gaza. 
Brutal door-to-door -door fighting took place in the narrow streets of Gaza between IDF soldiers and Hamas militants. Israel finally ended the operation just two days before Obama was sworn in as president. Nearly 1,400 Palestinians had been killed. On the other side of the Arabian Peninsula, Mossad was again showing it could get to anyone, anywhere. They had tracked down Mahmoud al-Mabhu, a high-ranking member of Hamas's al-Qassam brigade, to a hotel in Dubai. Mossad agents snuck into al-Mabhu's room and drugged him so that he was paralyzed but still conscious. Then they suffocated him with a pillow. As it turns out, Israel had no reason to worry about President Obama. As Benjamin Netanyahu succeeded Ehud Olmert in March 2009, the new American administration did nothing to stop Israel's aggressive tactics in Gaza. President Obama gave what many called a historic speech in Cairo. During this speech, he repeated many of the same things previous presidents before him have said. While he declared his support of the two-state solution, he also confirmed the U.S.'s historical commitment to Israel. He encouraged Palestinians to abandon violence, but made no mention of the 1,400 Palestinians killed in Gaza just a few months earlier. Later in the year, President Obama hosted Mahmoud Abbas and Benjamin Netanyahu in Washington to kickstart yet another round of peace talks. But the Obama administration still refused to confront Israel in any meaningful fashion. In May 2010, several ships carrying humanitarian aid for Gaza tried to break through Israel's blockade. The ships in this Freedom Flotilla, as it was called, were not military ships. Israel easily intercepted the flotilla and boarded the lead ship. What happened next is disputed. Israel claims the activists aboard the ship attacked their soldiers who were forced to open fire. The Freedom Flotilla activists deny this assertion. It does seem unlikely that a group of peace activists, many of whom were journalists, politicians, and college students, would be foolish enough to attack a group of well-armed, professional soldiers backed by military helicopters and speedboats. Whatever happened, the Israeli soldiers shot and killed nine activists aboard the ship. A tenth activist died later. The Israeli government claimed the ships were carrying weapons and banned material to Gaza, while Turkey and the United Nations denied these allegations. The international backlash from this incident was swift and sharp. Turkey's Prime Minister, Recep Tayyip Erdogan condemned the attack, demanded a full investigation, and urged sanctions against Israel. Most members of the Arab League expressed similar sentiments condemning Israel to various degrees. Even the European Union condemned the attacks, accusing Israel of violating international law. As for the United States, President Obama released a statement expressing his regret at the loss of life. Members of Congress released a bipartisan statement supporting Israel's actions and called on the president to declare his support of Israel as well. If nothing else, the backlash forced Israel to loosen its blockade on Gaza. That summer, Hamas militants conducted several attacks against Israelis in the West Bank. At the same time, Hamas also stepped up its rocket attacks from Gaza. 
All of this was to disrupt the talks between Abbas and Netanyahu. These attacks resulted in the deaths of five Israelis, though none of them by rocket fire. In response, the Palestinian Authority, with help from Israeli intelligence, cracked down on Hamas in the West Bank. It seemed like the Middle East was going to settle into another cycle of violence. But suddenly, out of nowhere, the Tunisian government fell apart and the Arab Spring began. Leaving Iraq Even before Barack Obama became president, the United States was starting to hand over more and more duties to the Iraqi government. The new Iraqi government also reversed course on some earlier mistakes. In early 2008, the Iraqi parliament passed a law allowing former military officers and officials within Saddam Hussein's regime to apply for government positions. The government also cut ties with Muqtada al-Sadr, who eventually went into exile in Iran. Before long, Iraqi forces were fighting Jaysh al-Mahdi and other Shiite militias. Less than a month after taking office, President Obama unveiled a plan to withdraw U.S. troops from Iraq by August 2010. His plan went into effect immediately and the United States began handing security duties over to the Iraqis. But Iraq was not secure by any means. ISI continued to launch attacks and suicide bombings as the Americans drew down. The United States and Iraqi security forces still collaborated on some operations, killing two ISI leaders in April 2010. But as we'll see, the Iraqi government was not prepared to handle both ISI and the Shiite militias on its own. As promised, the last American combat troops left Iraq on August 19, 2010. However, several thousand remained behind as military advisors and trainers. The Arab Spring Meanwhile, in Tunisia, a frustrated merchant set himself ablaze after being mistreated by corrupt government officials. His dramatic suicide sparked massive protests that eventually forced Tunisia's ruling family to flee the country. Improved cell phone and mobile technology allowed these images to quickly spread across the globe. Before long, young Arabs across the Middle East began protesting their government, all of whom were controlled by authoritarian dictators. This phenomenon, which the media dubbed the Arab Spring, hit Egypt in early January 2011. By February, Hosni Mubarak, who had ruled for nearly 30 years, was forced to step down as president. Elections were held for the first time in modern Egypt and the Muslim Brotherhood won the presidency and a majority in parliament. But this victory did not last for long. The military, led by General Abdul Fattah al-Sisi, overthrew the Muslim Brotherhood government and instituted a brutal crackdown. Hundreds of people were killed and al-Sisi has ruled Egypt ever since. Around the same time, a civil war began in Libya. Though it appeared connected to the Arab Spring, it was just a normal civil war where segments of the military had rebelled against Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi. Initially, the rebels were winning. France had oil contracts in Libya and, in order to maintain those contracts, quickly recognized the rebels as the legitimate government. 
But a few months later, the momentum shifted and Qaddafi's forces took the upper hand. It soon became clear that Qaddafi would crush the rebellion. France was now worried that Qaddafi would cancel their oil contracts in retaliation for supporting the rebels. To prevent this, France falsely accused Qaddafi of targeting civilians. NATO launched an air campaign against Qaddafi, turning the tide in favor of the rebels. The rebels eventually killed Qaddafi and Libya has been mired in civil war ever since. By March 2011, Syria was also sliding towards civil war. Syria had been suffering from a severe drought for years. This forced many farmers to migrate to the urban areas seeking work, but there was none to be found. These disgruntled workers began protesting the government even before the Arab Spring began, but these protests were generally peaceful. However, when the Syrian opposition saw how NATO interfered in Libya, they decided to try the same thing. They ramped up the protests until some of them turned violent. Syria's resident dictator, Bashar al-Assad, responded with a brutal crackdown. Segments of the military used this as an excuse to revolt against the al-Assad regime in the hopes of NATO intervention, which never came. Obama saw how things turned out in Libya and did not want to get involved in Syria. And without U.S. leadership, NATO would not do anything. Before long, Syria was divided into three broad factions. Pro-Assad forces, anti-Assad forces, and Daesh militants. Saudi Arabia and some of the Gulf states supported the rebels and the militants. Russia and Iran supported the pro-Assad forces. Syria was torn to pieces, but Bashar al-Assad remained in power. The Largest Open-Air Prison in the World The events of the Arab Spring shook the Palestinian leadership to the core. The fall of Hosni Mubarak was a disaster for Fatah as Egypt was one of its biggest supporters. Hamas was also uncomfortable with the Arab Spring. Ideologically, Hamas was opposed to the Assad regime. However, Bashar al-Assad had supported Hamas for decades. Hence, Hamas did not know which of the three major factions was in their best interest. Before long, the Arab Spring came to Palestine. Palestinians protested, demanding new elections and unity between Fatah and Hamas. The two groups reluctantly agreed to form a coalition government in May 2011. This agreement infuriated Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who threatened to cut off all aid to the Palestinian Authority. To counter these threats, Mahmoud Abbas requested membership status from the United Nations. A year later, the UN granted Palestine non-member observer status. Netanyahu retaliated by authorizing the construction of more settlements in the West Bank. The following year, Israel ramped up its aggression against Palestine. They began by assassinating Zuhair al-Qaisi, leader of the Popular Resistance Committees in Gaza. Later that year, Israel launched Operation Pillar of Defense in Gaza, presumably in response to over a hundred rocket attacks. By this time, 
Israel had implemented its Iron Dome defense network, so very few of these rockets hit anything. Nonetheless, Israel launched airstrikes in Gaza and assassinated the second-in-command of Hamas's militant wing. Egypt eventually brokered an Israeli withdrawal after eight days. But by then, 160 Palestinians and four Israelis had been killed. Israel refrained from extensive military action in the West Bank, but it continued to build settlements at a rapid pace. To connect these new settlements, Israel constructed roads, bridges, and tunnels which often cut through and divided up Palestinian neighborhoods. On top of that, Palestinians were also banned from using these new transportation networks, severely restricting their freedom of movement. Settlement construction was especially intense in East Jerusalem, which had always been considered Palestinian territory. The Israeli government actively encouraged Jewish settlers to move there, even offering them government subsidies. President Obama criticized these new settlements, which angered the right wing in the United States and Israel. Israel ignored Obama's criticisms and continued building their settlements. In July 2014, Israel launched its deadliest assault on Gaza to date. It all began when three Israeli teenagers in the West Bank were kidnapped and killed. Israel blamed Hamas, but Hamas denied any responsibility. Mahmoud Abbas also said there was no evidence Hamas was involved and suggested it was likely done by rogue elements. This led to Operation Protective Edge, which took place in Gaza, even though the murders happened in the West Bank. Heavy Israeli airstrikes and artillery shelling pummeled Gaza for a week. Then IDF troops invaded Gaza, where they battled Hamas militants through the dense neighborhoods. Over 2,000 Palestinians were killed, most of them civilians. 70% of Gaza's population was harmed in some way by the invasion. 20,000 homes were destroyed. On the Israeli side, 67 soldiers and 5 civilians were killed. Surveys later showed that 90% of the Israeli population supported these attacks on Gaza. Nonetheless, we should acknowledge that there is an element of the Israeli population that favors a peaceful resolution to the conflict. There are also several Israeli non-profit organizations that actively support Palestinian human rights and freedoms. Hamoked is an Israeli human rights organization dedicated to assisting Palestinians. Betasalem is an Israeli human rights organization dedicated to ending the occupation. Gisha is an Israeli non-profit dedicated to protecting Palestinian freedom of movement. Yesh Din is an Israeli nonprofit dedicated to protecting Palestinian rights. But by and large, most Israelis preferred aggressive, heavy-handed action against the Palestinians. In the 2015 elections, Israel chose a far-right, anti-Arab government led by Benjamin Netanyahu. In his last year in office, President Obama tried to rekindle the peace process. He sent Secretary of State John Kerry to meet with Netanyahu, President Sisi of Egypt, and King Abdullah of Jordan for talks in Aqaba. For some reason, Mahmoud Abbas was not included in these discussions. Benjamin Netanyahu had no reason to offer any concessions. The Israeli public supported him. 
He was angry with Obama for striking a nuclear deal with Iran. And Donald Trump was waiting in the wings, having just defeated Hillary Clinton. In December 2016, the United Nations Security Council passed a resolution calling for an end to the Israeli settlements. Historically, the United States always vetoed these resolutions. As Obama's final diss to Netanyahu, the U.S. simply abstained and the resolution passed. Not to be outdone, Netanyahu reached out to President-elect Donald Trump and convinced him to publicly call for the resolution to be vetoed. Daesh In Iraq, ISI took advantage of the civil war in Syria, sending a faction there to establish a new network. Meanwhile, as the final American troops left, the Iraqi government was in turmoil. Parliament issued an arrest warrant for Iraq's Sunni vice president, triggering a boycott by Sunni lawmakers. While the Iraqi government floundered, ISI continued launching attacks across Iraq, even breaking several of its members out of prison. By the end of 2012, Iraq was nearing collapse as Sunnis protested the Shiite-controlled government and sectarian violence escalated. The following spring, the Iraqi army cracked down on the protests, further fueling Sunni anger. The protests grew violent, the government responded, and hundreds of civilians were killed. This encouraged many Sunnis to join ranks with the insurgency. Around this time, ISI took on a new name, officially recognizing its branch in Syria, Adulatul Islamiyah fin Iraqi Washam. Translated as the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, most Westerners call this group ISIS or ISIL. But in Arabic, its acronym is Daesh, and that's what it is mostly known by in the Middle East. In the summer of 2013, Daesh launched a new campaign taking the fight directly to the Iraqi government. After breaking hundreds of prisoners out of Abu Ghraib, Daesh went on to launch a major offensive against the Kurdish-controlled regions of northern Iraq. By the end of the year, Daesh controlled Fallujah. In January 2014, Daesh captured Ramadi. Then it captured Raqqa in Syria. That spring, it captured Mosul. This prompted Iran to send in troops to bolster the Iraqi forces fighting Daesh. The United States also launched airstrikes against Daesh, meaning Americans and Iranians were now fighting on the same side. Ayatollah Ali Asistani, the highest-ranking Shiite religious figure, called on all Iraqis to help in the fight against Daesh. Thousands of Iraqis responded, mostly Shiite, but also some Sunnis and Christians. In August 2014, Daesh captured Sinjar and Zumar in northern Iraq, where it committed atrocities against the local Yazidi minorities. The United States continued to launch airstrikes while also creating a new coalition against Daesh. This international coalition included dozens of nations as well as NATO, the EU, and the Arab League. The Iraqi government deployed 30,000 troops in the effort. By the fall of 2015, the tide began to turn against Daesh. The Kurds recaptured Sinjar while the Iraqis recaptured Ramadi. Fallujah was recaptured the following year. 
Mosul, however, remained under Daesh control until July 2017, and even then only after an intense year-long campaign. In December 2017, Iraqi Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi declared victory over Daesh. This concludes the main storyline for this series on the Middle East after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. In the next and final episode for this season, we will give some closing thoughts on the current status in the Middle East. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash Middle East to find other episodes in this series. To learn more about the life of the last messenger of God, subscribe to our other show, The Prophet Muhammad Podcast. If you enjoyed these podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and review and share with your friends and family. The Islamic History Podcast is 100% listener-supported. You can support our work and get access to exclusive content by becoming a member of Islamic History Exclusive. Visit IslamicHistoryX.com for more information. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium shows. You can also make a one-time donation by visiting islamichistorypodcast.com slash donate or send a tip via Cash App using the cash tag Islamic History. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Jerusalem returns to Islam. One of the Christians who went to Jerusalem was Balian of Ibelin, who was also captured during the Battle of Hattin. But Balian begged Salahuddin to release him and allow him to retrieve his wife and children from Jerusalem. A noble such as Balian could have brought a large ransom. Nonetheless, Salahuddin freed Balian with the promise that he'd get his family and leave Palestine. Needless to say, Balian betrayed Salahuddin. Once he entered Jerusalem, he immediately began preparing its defenses. Balian fortified the city walls and drafted nearly every remaining able-bodied man he could find. He knighted all the nobles and prepared for Salahuddin's arrival. On September 20th, 1187, Salahuddin put the city of Jerusalem under siege. All of Balian's efforts to save Jerusalem were useless. With the exception of Tyre, all of Palestine and most of Lebanon were under Salahuddin's authority. 
Salahuddin controlled the situation. His ships prowled the sea on the watch for Frankish reinforcements. 10,000 soldiers were in Transjordan besieging the castles Kerak and Montreal. And at Jerusalem, 20,000 Muslim soldiers surrounded the city. They set up their siege machinery and began launching missiles at its walls. While Salahuddin's catapults and mangonels hurled stones at the wall's ramparts, his sappers worked on weakening its foundations. Finally, on September 29, 1187, after nearly ten days of constant bombardment, the sappers broke through Jerusalem's outer ring of walls. With only the inner wall standing between them, Jerusalem's downfall was inevitable. Salahuddin was ready to unleash his soldiers on the city and sack it, punishment for Balian's betrayal. But the old knight had one more trick up his sleeve. Balian sent a message to Salahuddin asking for peace negotiations. When Salahuddin refused, Balian threatened to kill every Muslim living in Jerusalem. He also promised his men would destroy all of the Islamic buildings in the city and fight to the death, taking as many Muslims with them as possible. This finally gave Salahuddin pause. He convened a war council to discuss Balian's threats. Salahuddin's lieutenants advised him to negotiate with Balian. One way or the other, they said, Jerusalem was going to fall. No need to waste thousands of Muslim lives in the process. 